We are a band of brothers, diverse yet unified, aligned to pursue the truth, resolute in our commitment. We are stronger together, and you are one of us. This is the Brotherhood Podcast. Brothers, welcome to the broadcast. Today we get to tune in and listen to Pastor Willie George's message from our 2021 summit. This is our Saturday morning session, so let's tune in and listen to his message to the Brotherhood. Oh boy, I love this place. I like this building. It's a cool building, isn't it? It was heck to build, I can tell you that. Two and a half years. I won't go into all the details, but... It was a fight, I'm telling you. But we won. Proverbs 12, 24. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. Here the scripture makes a very good statement. It says that God promotes through the hand. God promotes through the hand, not through the heart, not through the brain, not through the emotions, through the hand. Whatever your hand findeth to do, Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, do it with all your might. He didn't say whatever your heart finds to do. He didn't say whatever your head finds to do. Whatever your circumstances lead you to do. He didn't say that. He said whatever the hand finds to do. What does that mean? It means that very often that the thing that comes before us doesn't look that attractive, doesn't look that great, doesn't look that promising, but it is the way of success. It is the way of fruitfulness. It is the way of blessing. And very often all we have is a hand. I remember when I came home from my first year of Bible school and had very much made the decision I wouldn't be going back. Our Bible school was staffed by ministers who had failed in ministry and they went out and got degrees and came back and taught everybody else how to do it. (laughs) If the doctors ran the med schools like that, we would have... uh, Malpractice suits all the time, all the time. Uh, We didn't know. And I came home and went to a couple of conferences taught by very successful pastors. And I came out and said, my gosh, I got more in a day than I could use than I did in a whole year of Bible school. Now, there were some good things and there were some good people. And even some of the people that weren't that effective in teaching, communicating, they had a good heart. We just didn't know. Just didn't know. And that's what happens with a lot of people that just don't know. And I want to talk to you about the importance of finishing, the importance of practicing diligence. Most people want to feel their way through to success. They want to feel their way to victory. In other words, they have an idea. They have an idea that if I have the right woman, we will, we will just fit. There's no working on our marriage. That's not true. That if I get in the right career, that we will get into a groove and everything would just be right. Every day would be amazing. I remember when I was in a little rock and roll band back when I was a teenager. We played little towns around the Texas Panhandle and western Oklahoma. And, and we'd go to all these little dance halls and play. And we were probably terrible, but we, we didn't know we were. But... Every so many nights, and it didn't happen all the time. And if you've ever been in a band, and you guys, I'm sure, here on the stage, you know what I'm talking about. Every now and then, you hit the groove. 
and we would hit it. And there would be nights when I would turn over and just look at our drummer who was the leader of the group, and we were playing over our heads. Everything was gelling. The sound was great. We felt great. And that might be on a Friday night. The very next night on a Saturday, we go to a different dance hall, and it was nothing like that, nothing at all. And so there are times when you really feel it, and there are times when you don't. And if you had to make it on the times that you felt it, there wouldn't be enough of them to get you through to the end. And that doesn't mean that you hate every minute of what it is you're involved with, but I want to tell you, you cannot always count on feeling your way through. But in this part of town, you can count on the National Guard to fly <laughs> their planes. <laughs> every assignment, doesn't matter what it is, every assignment comes with things you love and it comes with things that you don't love. And can I tell you, I believe that the things that we dislike the most in many ways, wind up becoming our very best teachers. You see, God is not the only one, or he's, He not only wants to start us, inspire us, send us off, but He wants us to finish. I want you to listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, lots of people watching us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily ensnare us. Let us run with endurance. There's that word. Keep it in mind. You're going to read it over and over in this chapter. Endurance. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus. Look at this. The author and finisher of our faith. God only, not only wants to start us, he wants to finish us. And the finishing is harder than the starting. You know, finishing is God's domain. And when we read this chapter, there's a lot here about correction. And I think sometimes we hear that word and immediately go into negative mode. Correction, no, that's bad. Let me use a different word that I think in the 21st century captures more of the heart of what God wanted to say here. Because I think this word more directly describes what God does with us. How about the word adjustment? You see, when God corrects really what he's doing, he's making adjustments in us. And now that's a little bit more acceptable, isn't it? It's a little easier to swallow. It's a little easier to bear. Because when someone is making adjustments, they're saying to you, I'm not throwing you away. I'm not done with you. I'm not casting you off. I'm for you. I, I, I really care about you. A lot of times when we hear the word correction, we think that means, oh, no, I'm a reject. But that's not really what God is saying here. God is not talking about rejecting his children. In fact, the only rejection that takes place here is those who do not like to make adjustments wind up living life on their own without the guidance of God. But he is telling us that in order to fulfill everything that you're supposed to do, you will have to make adjustments all along the way. And any good operator whether he's a football player or a building contractor or the pastor of a church or the superintendent of a school, the hospital administrator, it doesn't matter who it is. Any good leader learns how to make adjustments because you can never sit down before you begin a thing and see it all. There are things along the way you will have to adjust on the fly 
and some of your ideals will be busted along the way. So none of us is a natural finisher. Keep that in mind. We have to learn to adjust to do it. We're running a race of endurance. I am so grateful, and I never thought I would hear myself say this, but I'm saying it today. The single greatest element of training that I received was when I hauled hay. That was the very best thing that could have happened to me. Now, I had a pretty tough job the summer after I finished my junior year in high school. Before I started my senior year, I worked on a pipeline crew, and we called it doodle bugging, where we go drill holes, and, and I had to shovel out a, a, a pit. Uh, we had a little pit where they, they flushed water down the ground. It would bring up the sand. I had to shovel that out. And it, was, it was pretty physical, but I didn't like the man I worked for. And the man I worked for was a religious bigot, and he attacked me all day long. And I worked for him for about six to eight weeks, and I quit. And I quit too soon. And I didn't like being with the guy. He was, in fact, a hypocrite. He had been a part of a church similar to ours, but he decided it was all wrong. He turned, and here I was, a 17-year-old kid. He's well in his 40s, and he feels like it's his mission in life to put me down every day, all day long. I was the best worker he ever had, and he knew it. But I let him run me off. And I wished I would have stuck it out. The next summer, when I graduated from high school, I had an even tougher job physically. I started hauling hay with my uncle. And the thing about that was, I couldn't quit. I was stuck with him. Because I lived with him. He bought my car. He's the one going to put me into Bible school. So I had no choice but to endure everything that got thrown at me. And I got to tell you, there were some of our hay jobs that were fairly easy. But I really didn't like hay hauling. I didn't like it at all. And the reason is it was because it's in the boonies. You don't get to haul hay by the swimming pool while all the girls are. And I, how I wished over and again that the hay field was right next to the swimming pool. But that meant that my job would carry me out of town to the boonies every single day. And I was a city kid. I didn't, didn't like being out in the boonies. I wanted to be where people were, but I didn't get that chance. It was me and the bugs and the hay. Now, my uncle was in the cab of the truck. He's driving, and I'm on the back, and there's another guy back there, and the two of us are slinging bales as fast as we can go because most of the hay fields we operated in, you had to drive faster, you got stuck. And the more hay you put on the back, the faster you had to drive because your hay truck got heavier and heavier. And if the field was sandy and if it had been plowed and so forth, it was a lot worse. And so we had lots of adventures on the back of that hay truck. Every now and then, a little rattlesnake would come up and show his face and uh, uh, swing at us just a little bit. Uh, the thing I hated the most was squishy bales. I don't mind heavy bales. Heavy bales are good because heavy bales are easy to stand on. But when they make squishy bales and the guy has baled his own hay, it's the most miserable experience you can ever have. It means at least every fifth, sixth bale is going to bust the minute it comes up the chute on the ladder, uh, on the, uh, on the, the uh, elevator. And uh, the, this, it's it just, it, it just a beast. I mean, it's hard to deal with. So you throw it off, and, and then you got to go pick all this empty hay up or this loose hay up later on. And it's just a very frustrating job. My uncle wouldn't quit. And all the years that I hauled hay with him, we quit one job, one. We had hay barns that you couldn't back into because they had a big, huge ceiling in the barn, but nobody thought to build the door high enough to get a hay truck in. 
So we got to go all the way to the back of the barn. We can't get the truck back there. So we've got to set up a little system where we drop the bales just perfectly. And we learned how to do this, where you'd roll bales 20 or 30 feet. And so we would learn how to do that to get the bales back. Finally, after the truck was two-thirds of the way unloaded, then we could back up. But now we're working from a low spot trying to put the hay up high. Frustrating. Wanted to pull my hair out. Why doesn't somebody think? I think this guy who put this barn in never had to haul his own hay. So I learned to do things right. And I learned to finish. And I did it long enough that it trained me. To the point that I learned you don't quit. You finish what you start. And too many people in life fail because they start things and they feed off the energy of new. And can I tell you, there is an energy of new that's very, very real. There are a lot of Christians that live their whole lives this way. They start a church, they get in two or three years, then they are brought face to face with a correction or with an adjustment they need to meet, make. But rather than submit to the adjustment, they quit and they run to another place. And oh, how exciting it is because there's new. And they always run to what is new. They never really finish. A lot of people do that with their careers. My mother was that way. I don't know except for maybe one time that she kept a job over 15 months. She would get mad, blow up, cuss out her boss, walk out the door. Leave, get mad, go. Leave, get mad, go. Consequently, she never had any real success or continuance financially because she kept pulling herself up by the roots. And this happened over and over and over again. What I want you to see is that God has called us to finish, which requires this thing called diligence. Let me read to you a definition from Strong's Concordance. And this is the Hebrew word for diligence. It's karutz. And it means incisive, able to cut a trench, meaning that this trench has been cut out by something sharp. It is also used to describe mined gold. Why? Because you don't just walk out most of the time and pick gold up off the ground. If you did, that wouldn't be considered diligence. Diligence is that you find the ore, you crush the ore, you treat the ore, and finally you extract a little bit of gold from all of that ore. That's the idea behind diligence. It also refers to a threshing sledge, having sharp teeth. It means determination. It means decisive. It means eager. A diligent person understands how to cut through difficult circumstances. Decisive, focused. One of the things I had to learn is that you can't have everything. You can't have everything. We see people who seem to have everything, but nobody really has everything because everything that you go after, when you chase it, you have to give something else up to get it. I'm a great lover of history. I love to read history of the West. And when I was a kid, I would drive past historical markers all the time. And my dad would tell me, now right down here is where they fought this battle and this is where they fought that battle. And I found out that this is the part of the country I lived in, which were the Comanche Indians were supreme. 
The Comanches acquired the horse somewhere between 1700-1750. They moved out of the northern plains country up in Wyoming where they were part of the Shoshone tribe. And they split and they came to the south. And the reason they came is because the further south you went, the more possibility you had to find horses. Because the horses in the New World came from the Spanish. The Spanish came into the continent from Mexico. They came up Mexico, got into the Rio Grande River in New Mexico, and they built these haciendas and rancheros, and then the horses would escape, and they became wild mustangs, and the Comanches learned how to tame those mustangs, and they learned how to steal horses, and they were incredibly stealthy at doing that. And it wasn't long before they became rich by Plains Indian standards because they now have huge teepees that they can carry because they have a workhorse to carry the load. And so instead of a four or five buffalo skin teepee, they've got a buffalo skin teepee with 12, 14 hides. And now instead of two or three children, they can have five or six children. And they have huge families. A man might have two or three wives and they are rich by Indian standards. They can now follow the buffalo wherever the buffalo go. And a Comanche chief, it's not unlike it to, for him to have 1,500 of his own horses and mules. That means a village then would have somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 horses. Now, here's what that does. It wipes out the grass in a week. And so it changes the whole structure of the tribe. Now, instead of villages having 500 people in them, 400 people, they have to separate in order to find enough grass. And so the average village runs 125 people. Now, because they are traveling constantly, because every few days they wear out all the grass in the neighborhood and they have to move on to find more for their horses, they're on the move. Even the pregnant women who don't necessarily want to go, but they can't separate from the group. They have to go and so the rate of miscarriage exploded among Comanche women because they had to be in the saddle all the time. Another thing that happened was the older men were not present in large numbers in the tribe, meaning that all of the leaders were relatively young. Whereas you would stop into a Cheyenne village or a Sioux village, something like what Custer ran into at Little Bighorn in June, in 1876, where there were thousands of Native Americans gathered in one place. It didn't happen often, only perhaps in the wintertime with the Comanches when there was no grass to be had. But for the most part, they're in these smaller, smaller villages. And what it meant is the young men who were more warlike, who had more to gain by going on war raids because they wanted to earn status through fighting and so there were not older men to temper that. They went. And it brought them into conflict over and over and over again. So here's what I'm saying is you, you get what you want, but you can't have everything. And it's a spiritual law. You want to be a great athlete, you can't eat everything. Ask Tom Brady. He lives on a very restrictive diet. There are things that he cannot do. He cannot perform at the level he performs at year in, year out by eating the way you and I would eat. 
He has to carefully monitor his diet. He has to carefully monitor his schedule. He has to carefully monitor and regulate his workouts because he has chosen something and saying yes to this means saying no to that. And that's what diligence is. Diligence is the ability to make adjustments to give up and to say no to things that are not going to help you achieve your goal. There was a season in my life that I had to say no to a lot of my personal hobbies. And the reason I had to do it was because I had a heavy demand on me from my job, but I also knew that I brought three, at the time, children into the world that did not ask to come into the world, and I could not rob them of my relationship with them just because I had things I wanted to do. And so I made a decision that I would personally invest in my children. They became my hobby. I sometimes envied guys who had other things that they did. I didn't have that kind of opportunity. But it was okay because I loved being with my kids. They got into skateboards. I got into skateboards. I, I came in the garage one night. I've told this story a thousand times. But Whit was uh, nailing two boards together. And it was two before, and it looked like a cross. And I said, what are you doing, Whit? He said, that's my new skateboard ramp. I said, no, it's not. It's a cross. You run your skateboard over that, you're going to die just like Jesus did on that ramp. <laughs> so I said, come on, let's get in the truck. We'll go, we'll, we'll, we'll go find some, some lumber and, and build a proper skateboard ramp. So we did. We went to the store and got all the stuff and the whole way out of the neighborhood my boys are screaming out the window at all the neighborhood kids my dad's building a skateboard ramp and pretty soon we had all the kids in the neighborhood at our house I never thought about liability insurance for that but anyway uh, thank God nobody got hurt seriously but uh, it, it, it was something that I did for years and here about a year or two ago I walked in a staff meeting and uh it was after I had turned the church over to Whit, and I needed to see one of the leaders, and, and I was looking around for that person, and I stuck my head in the door, and they said, come on in, Dad. And I went in, and there was Whit sitting with all of his team, and uh, we talked for a few minutes, then I left. And as I walked away, I thought, whoa, I just realized something. Around the table, 180, 180, 180, 180, 180. There were just a couple of people out of maybe 10 who didn't come up through 180. And I said, you know, in 1995 when I launched 180, I thought I was saving them. But I was wrong. They wound up saving me. Look at what I get to do today. Look at what I have been able to turn over. Look at what I've built and now I know it's in good hands. And I thought all this time I was saving them. They were in turn saving me. That's what diligence does. Diligence builds something worthwhile. Not everything that you build is worthwhile. You see, diligence is about finishing. And the great reward of doing anything is when you bring it to completion. When you finish it, that is when you get the best. Wow. Listen to what Hebrews 12 says. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before endured the cross, 
despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. The writer of Hebrews says here that it's possible, even when you follow Christ, that you can become weary and discouraged in your soul. He said, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. You've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, the adjustments of the Lord. Don't despise that. Nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure, there it is again, chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you're without chastening, if you cast it off, in other words, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate and you're not a son. He said, furthermore, we've had fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they, for a few days, chastened us as it seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Wow. There's always a little bit of discomfort when you go after something that's really worthwhile. But you learn to work through it to the point that you get where you don't even notice it. It isn't that we hate what we do. Actually, what happens is we learn to refine ourselves to learn to enjoy things that we would not have naturally enjoyed. And by the way, none of us is a natural finisher. I think about Joseph, the young man who was sold by his brothers into slavery. And they carried him off to Egypt, the people that he was sold to, and they put him on the auction block. He was bought by a guy named Potiphar, the chief of Pharaoh's guard. You know what the Hebrew reads literally there? He was the chief of the butchers, the chief of the executioners, but the word butcher is used in Hebrew. He is an executioner. He is not a man to be trifled with, and this is who Joseph gets put under. But Joseph quickly learns to win him over. And Joseph is not in this place by choice, but once he realizes he has no other options, he learns to make the most of what he's in. He realizes that God saw all of this happen. God obviously did not stop it. So if God did not stop it, then there's something that he can get here that will be a blessing. And so he changes his attitude. Now, Joseph has had some dreams. And in his dreams, he saw his brothers. And he were binding shocks of wheat in a field. And all of their shocks bowed down to his shock. And he had that dream and he foolishly told it to his brothers. He had another dream where he saw the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowing down to him. And he told that dream too. And they hated him for these dreams. It was God speaking to him. And it was God letting him know that he is going to be a leader. But he wasn't ready to be a leader. He was so foolish that he shared things he should never have shared. That's not what a leader does. And so Joseph had to go through school. He had to go through finishing school. And what I know is that two years before he was finally promoted out of finishing school, he almost messed up the plan. Because he interpreted the dream of a butler who worked for Pharaoh. 
And he said, when you get back on the job, because that's what your dream means, I want you to tell Pharaoh about me being falsely accused and tell him that I don't deserve to be here. Had Joseph gotten that wish, it would have messed up everything that God had been doing for him. He was not a natural finisher. He didn't want to finish. He wanted to get out. And it's understandable. But what we learn is that Joseph was very quietly, perhaps without not even realizing it, getting an incredible education. Number one, he learned how to speak Egyptian. He learned how to speak Egyptian so well that when his own brothers came years later and heard him talk, they could not tell he was a Hebrew. He spoke exactly like an Egyptian. Number two, Joseph learned the culture of Egypt. He quit fighting the culture. He embraced the culture where he could. Certainly did not compromise to the culture. That's evident from the story. But Joseph nonetheless learned how to think like Egyptians think. And he understood how to work in that world. And so he learned the language and the culture. Thirdly, he was put in charge of the food at Potiphar's house. And Potiphar trusted him so much that he did not know what he owned except for the bread that was on the table in front of him. That's all he knew. Joseph took care of everything else. Finally, after Potiphar's wife lied about Joseph and he was thrown into a dungeon, I know that Potiphar knew that his wife was at fault because he would not have hesitated to kill Joseph if he thought for a moment Joseph was guilty of what his wife accused him of, but he had to save face. So in the prison, Joseph learned how to deal with lots of tough cases. And if you're going to be a leader, you've got to learn to deal with difficult people. You've got to learn to relate to people. You've got to learn to to manage people, and that's what he did in the prison. So he had an incredible education. And finally the day came when the Pharaoh had dreams and didn't know the interpretation. Now he has come to the finish. And when Joseph interprets the Pharaoh's dreams, tells him what the dreams mean, and tells him, you better get ready for what's going to come. We're going to have seven great years followed by seven bad years. And you need somebody who can manage this. Pharaoh is a leader. Pharaoh is not a romantic. He is a leader. He is a hard leader. He understands that leadership in his country and in his position is about life and death. And he turns to his followers and he says to those who are in his court, can we find anybody with wisdom like this? In other words, he said, this is the most qualified man in the land. Listen to me. Too many people read the Bible like a fairy tale book. They think that David going out fighting Goliath is about a fairy tale, about a kid who has no business winning wins. He had every right in the world to win. He was rehearsed at slinging stones. He had already killed a lion and a bear. He was thoroughly prepared for what he faced. Joseph was prepared more than any other man in Egypt. Pharaoh dealt with generals. He dealt with administrators. He dealt with mathematicians. He dealt with people who were absolutely brilliant. He dealt with doctors. He had the highest level of education of any ruler in the world. And he looks at Joseph and he recognizes something in him and he says, can we find such a man as this? Now let me tell you why. It is because Joseph was a finisher.
And everything that had been put in his hand, he did it to completion. You will not finish well at the end of your life if you do not finish your stages. The leading of the Lord is not a rope. The leading of the Lord is a chain. And it's comprised of separate and individual links. And the links are connected all right. And they do overlap. But there's not a steady stream with an indiscernible beginning and ending. God leads us in steps. The steps of a righteous man are ordered to the Lord, Psalm 37 says. uh, Proverbs 16 says, A man's heart devises his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Meaning that your life, my life, is a series of phases. It's a series of stages. And what happens is we're not careful. We get tired of a stage and we quit it before it's finished. And it's important that you finish your stages. I didn't say you couldn't quit a stage. I was so frustrated. I still remember it. I got on my knees and began to pray. This was in the fall of 1981. I told the Lord, I'm quitting. I've got to get out of this church. I have got to quit this church. I've got to leave. I've got to go. And the Lord said, you can't go. I said, Lord, it is an impossible situation. I can't believe the things they're throwing at me. And it, it, it's nuts. It is not what I agreed to when I came. They've changed all the rules. Everything is wrong. And I was eventually proved right. But I was telling the Lord, I can't endure this. He said, you can't go. And I kept trying to talk the Lord into letting me go. And he said, no, you can't go. So I thought, okay, one thing I do fear, I fear being out of the will of God. Can I tell you, I wish more people had that fear. People move with impunity, make quick decisions, fast decisions, don't weigh their decisions, jump from one thing to the next, never asking the question, is this God's will or not? And the one great characteristic I had in me was I had a fear of being out of God's will. And I said to the Lord, okay, I will stay. I will stay. I will finish this. I will be the best I can be. I will build the best children's department that this world's ever seen right here in this church where it's impossible to work. And I had no sooner prayed those words, I heard the Holy Spirit say, leave. I had a total release. It was a total shift. I was puzzled. I said, God, 30 minutes ago, you told me I couldn't go. Now you're telling me to get. What's going on? He said, you were leaving because it was tough. He said, when you become the leader of your own ministry, you will run into tough things. You can't start quitting every time you hit tough. You have to learn to finish. And it does so happen that it is time for you to go. But I wanted you to go for the right reason. Because I gave you a release. Not because it was tough. And I did go. And one thing I can say. Is that I've done a number of things down through the years. But in everything that I've done. I've always been a finisher. I've always brought it to a place of completion. Not that that's the end of the story. 
but I brought it to a place where someone else could pick it up, run with it, do something with it. And the reason that I look back on my life and I know that I finished is because I finished each one of the stages. How important is this? It's the way of Jesus. You'll never find God's plan. You'll never reach your great victory if you don't become a finisher. I'm going to close with this little section of Scripture. You're going to wonder why in the world I picked this. But I want to turn you to John's Gospel, chapter 19 and verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. What's going on here? You see, Jesus went to the cross knowing all of the details. He knew that he had to go to Jerusalem for that Passover. He knew that Passover was the one where he would be betrayed and crucified. He knew he had to be betrayed by one of his own. He knew that the others would flee when he was taken. That's why he told Peter with confidence, Peter, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. He knew he would be tried at night. He knew that they would hire false witnesses to say things against him. He knew that he would be taken to Herod. He knew he would be taken to Pontius Pilate. He knew that he would be scourged. He knew that he would be taken to Golgotha, to the same place where Abraham offered Isaac. He knew it ahead of time. He knew they would pierce his hands and his feet. He knew that they would stand before him and dare him to come off the cross. You saved others. Why don't you come down and save yourself? He knew that. Why? Because the Psalms and the book of Isaiah predicted every bit of it. And here he is after going through all of this stuff on the cross. He's gone through all of these details. But he knows one thing is missing. Because in Psalm 69, 21, it says they're going to give him vinegar to drink. And he's waiting for that to happen. And so he provokes them into doing it by saying, I thirst. And then they do it. He was so diligent about finishing, he wouldn't skip the tiniest detail. And once they had offered him the vinegar, he then said, it is finished, completed. 
and he bowed his head. He gave up the ghost. That's the importance of finishing. It's what Jesus did. It's what we do when we follow him. Doesn't mean that you can't have stages. Doesn't mean you have to do the same thing all your life. Doesn't mean that you don't move from one thing to the next, but it's important that when you do move, that you finish the stages where you are. Father, I ask you in the name of Jesus to help men to make these decisions. By your Holy Spirit, reveal to them what they need to adjust. Lord, let them know we come not to condemn, not to put down, not to browbeat, but to ask, measure yourself and ask yourself, have I completed my phase? Lord, in completing phases, we prepare ourselves for the next. And I thank you for it, Father. In the name of Jesus. Your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. You may be here and you say today, Pastor Willie, I'm not right with God. I'm not. I want to be forgiven of my sins. I want to know that I have Christ in me. I want to know who you are. Would you tell me that with an uplifted hand? Is there anyone like that anywhere in this room? Pastor Willie, pray for me. Anyone at all? Yes, see your hand. Anybody else? I want to know that I'm right with God. Anybody else anywhere in the room? May take me a minute to see you. Another one. Thank you, sir. I see that. Anybody else? Pastor Willie, please pray for me. I want to be included in your prayer. Yes, sir. I see your hand. That's three. Are there others? Is there anyone else? Anywhere in the room? Yes, sir. I see you. Anybody else up in the top? Thank you. Anyone else? Pastor Willie, pray for me. I've had four hands lifted now. Are there others? Five right there. Thank you, sir. See you. Anybody else? Pastor Willie, pray for me. Anyone else anywhere in the room? Men who lifted your hand right now. Nope, can't pray. I got two more. There's two more guys you're wrestling right now. Right now, you will not find a better time than today. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Don't act like you have the rest of your life. You don't know what tomorrow brings. Where is that other person? Where is that another one there? Good. I see you. Now I've got one more. Where's the one more? I've got one more. Right there. I see you. Gentlemen, pray with me out loud. We all love you. We're thrilled you're here. We're going to help you. We're going to pray with you like we're praying ourselves. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for loving me. So much you sent Jesus to finish a job. He died on the cross, fulfilling everything that he was supposed to do so that I could be saved. Lord Jesus, I confess you. I believe on you. I believe God raised you from the dead. Help me to follow you. Help me to be a finisher like you I am saved and that part of my life is finished the old man the old way is gone and the new way is beginning and I'm saved I am saved my eternal destiny is finished finished I'm going to heaven thank you Lord for hearing my prayer in Jesus name Amen. Now don't leave today without following the instruction they're about to come and give you about your next step.
the, you seven who raised your hands. God bless you. Thank you very much.